Hello and welcome once again to the Raw Attitude Podcast, where we chronologically take you through episodes of Monday Night Raw from the Attitude Era. I am, of course, your host, retired professional wrestler Henry Huge Pex, the suplex-throwing human duplex. As always, thank you for downloading, and we welcome your feedback at rawattitudepodcast at gmail.com, or if you'd like to write us a review on iTunes, as several people already have, that would greatly help us out as well. In fact, a brand new five-star review just came in recently from a gentleman named Azure Talon. I hope I pronounced that correctly. He titles it, Ruining the Attitude Era Retroactively, and he says, Hmm, I was a peckerhead from way back. Those are what we call my fans. And I was jazzed Henry is back in the very, very tiny limelight of podcasting. Glad he's able to leave wrestling and connect to his fans in such a successful way. He's the only wrestler I can think of who wouldn't look stupid doing this, but I am left wondering, was wrestling ever really good? Join the human duplex himself as he shelters multiple families at once and answers that question with, No. Thank you very much for that wonderful review, good sir. Much appreciated. In fairness, I do actually have some positive things to say about this week's episode of Raw, although I may just be biased because it features one of the most famous moments in wrestling history. If you fans out there would like to interact with us in yet another way, we also now have a Twitter at Raw Attitude Pod, where I promise to try and be funny in fewer than 140 characters. One other quick note, since this podcast is basically just me recapping things for half an hour a week, I think a good comparison is that we're basically last week tonight for wrestling, except the week actually happened 18 years ago, and I am nowhere near as funny as John Oliver. However, for those of you who get tired of me monologuing for 30 minutes on end all by myself, I can tell you I will likely be bringing on some other wrestling podcasters in future episodes. I've had discussions with several people, and I think adding another commentator's perspective for a few shows would definitely be beneficial, so stay tuned for that in the coming weeks. Alright now, ladies and gentlemen, we have a doozy of a show for you today. The post-Royal Rumble episode of Monday Night Raw, which also features an appearance by Mike Tyson. Of course, I can't take you through the post-Rumble episode of Raw without telling you what happens at the Rumble itself, so let's dive into that first and kick things off with this massive Royal Rumble and Raw extravagasm. As you might expect, Mike Tyson was shown in the skybox during the Rumble several times, sitting next to, what's this? The first acknowledged on-camera appearance of none other than Shane McMahon. Apparently, I couldn't have timed the creation of this podcast any better when compared to the present-day WWE product. Now for the Rumble results. Vader defeated the artist formerly known as Goldust when he set him up for a Vader bomb, but then Luna Vachon jumped on his back in an attempt to stop him, but then Vader climbed the turnbuckle with Luna on his back and hit the Vader bomb on Goldust anyway, which got a huge pop. Very cool spot. Go check it out, particularly to see the awkwardly painful way in which Luna landed. Max Mini, Mosaic, and Nova defeated Battalion, Tarantula, and El Torito. A couple things here. First of all, yes, they were still doing midget matches in 1998. And second, I know you're probably thinking, what the hell? El Torito was in the WWF 18 years ago? This was actually a different El Torito than the recent WWE version. This El Torito was Mario Perez Jimenez, who actually just died about a month ago on January 23rd, 2016. I bet you feel bad for confusing him with someone else now, don't you? I posted a picture of him on our Twitter, at RawAttitudePod, if you want to see the original legend himself. The Rock retained his Intercontinental title over Ken Shamrock in controversial fashion. Rock hit Shamrock with brass knuckles while referee Mike Kyoto was distracted, and then he sexily put the brass knucks in the front of Shamrock's tights. Rock went for the pin, but Shamrock kicked out. Shortly thereafter, Shamrock hit Rock with a belly-to-belly suplex and pinned him for the three count, making Shamrock the new champion and getting a really nice size pop from the San Jose crowd. 
However, Rock then told the ref that Shamrock hit him with the knucks, which led to the ref awkwardly patting down Shamrock's dick. Shamrock pulled the brass knucks out of his tights and said they weren't his, but of course the ref reversed his decision, enabling Rock to keep his title and drawing a ton of booze from the fans. Shamrock then hit Kyoto with a belly-to-belly suplex and put the ankle lock on him until other referees came to help, causing Shamrock to audibly yell, Get the fuck away from me! The New Age Outlaws retained their WWF Tag Team titles over the Legion of Doom via disqualification. Yes, we're even doing bullshit DQ finishes on pay-per-views now as well. Billy Gunn came off the top rope for a crossbody, but Animal caught him in midair and sloppily power-slammed him, almost dropping Billy on his head. However, before the ref could count to three, Road Dog ran into the ring and hit Animal with a chair to draw the disqualification. They kept beating on Animal with the chair after the match, as Hawk looked on helplessly since he had been handcuffed to the ring post by Road Dog earlier in the match. Eventually, Hawk did muster enough strength to break the cuffs, and he then hit both outlaws with a chair, and they scampered away. The Royal Rumble match was next, and here are a few noteworthy moments. Through some strange twist of fate, the men who drew number one and number two were Cactus Jack and Chainsaw Charlie. And speaking of Mick Foley, you may recall this as the rumble where all three faces of Foley entered as Cactus was tossed by Chainsaw Charlie, but then Mankind entered at number 16, then he was eliminated by Goldust, but then Dude Love entered at number 28. Good times. The Rock entered at number 4, and he was your Iron Man for the match, lasting 51 minutes and 32 seconds. Strangely, the next five men who lasted the longest in the Rumble have either been absent from Raw or glorified jobbers since I started the podcast. Blackjack Bradshaw, aka the future JBL, D'Lo Brown, 8-Ball, Phineas I. Godwin, and Headbanger Thrasher all lasted at least 28 minutes in the Rumble. Not only that, but the 45-year-old Honky Tonk Man lasted just under 20 minutes. This is indeed a disturbing universe. Owen Hart entered at number 9, and for some reason he was jumped by NWA representatives Jeff Jarrett and Jim Cornette. Owen has already been feuding with DX, and Los Barik was on Raw, so why not add one more stable to the mix? Owen was taken backstage after the beating, but when Jarrett officially entered at number 18, Owen also entered the Rumble behind him and quickly tossed Jarrett out. Shortly thereafter, Triple H and China came to ringside. China swung one of Hunter's crutches at Owen, but he caught it and engaged in a tug-of-war with her, but then Triple H swung the other crutch over Owen's back as China pulled him over the top rope, eliminating him from the rumble. Hunter beat Owen with a crutch and left, while Owen then chased after him. Unfortunately, as Owen ran backstage, he tripped, resulting in this rather tragic soundbite from Jerry Lawler. Of course, the man everyone wanted to see was Stone Cold Steve Austin, and he entered the match at number 24. Lawler had told us earlier that someone took Austin out backstage, perhaps as payback for Austin beating up so many superstars in the lead-up to the pay-per-view, but he seemed completely fine as he proceeded to immediately eliminate Mark Merrow and 8-Ball. After clearing out most of the jobbers in the ring, our final four was down to Steve Austin, Dude Love, and Nation of Domination members Farouk and The Rock. Austin hit Dude with a low blow, which enabled Farouk to clothesline him over the top rope, leaving the two NOD members and Austin. Farouk started working over Austin in the corner, but Rock snuck up behind him and dumped Farouk out, leaving us with Rock and Austin as the final two. Imagine that. Austin tossed Rock over the top, but Rocky held onto the rope. Rock then tried to sneak up on Austin, but he got a kick and a stunner for his efforts, and Austin then tossed him out to win the 1998 Royal Rumble, much to the delight of a celebrating Mike Tyson. Michael Cole then interviews Iron Mike, who says that, quote, Cone Stoled is the man, and he apparently won a fortune betting on him. I'd like to know what book he was taking professional wrestling bets back in 1998, but whatever. Believe it or not, Austin winning the Rumble was actually not the main event, as we still had the WWF Championship casket match between Shawn Michaels and The Undertaker. Only about 90 seconds into the match, we get the spot which alters HBK's career forever. He bounces off the ropes, but Taker backdrops him over the top rope to the floor, where Shawn's back hits the edge of the casket. 
As a result, HBK ends up herniating two discs in his back and crushing a third one, which, spoiler alert, will ultimately result in him having to retire in the next few months. Sean can clearly be seen wincing in pain after the spot and walking more upright and awkwardly, but to his credit, he toughs it out through almost 20 more minutes of the match and takes many more bumps on his injured back. The match culminates with Taker picking Sean up on his shoulder, stepping over the top rope while holding him, and delivering a jumping tombstone from the ring apron into the casket in an amazing spot. The referee was going to close the casket on Sean, but Triple H knocks him out before he can. This then causes the New Age Outlaws and Los Barricos to run out from backstage and gang up on Taker. They beat on him for a while until the lights go out and Kane heads to the ring. You may recall in the previous episode of Raw, Kane rescued Taker from a DX beatdown and now he's coming to the rescue once again. He takes out all six men by himself, causing them to run away. Kane then lifts his arms to signal for his pyro, but amusingly it doesn't go off and then Kane attacks the Undertaker. He beats on him for a bit and then chokeslams him into the casket where DX closes the lid, resulting in a victory for Shawn Michaels. Paul Bearer then comes to the ring with some padlocks to seal Taker inside. They wheel the casket to the stage area, where Kane briefly disappears, before re-emerging with an axe and a can of gasoline. Kane chops the casket lid until he breaks through it, which seems to defeat the purpose of padlocking it shut, but whatever. He then pours the gasoline on top of the casket and inside it. Paul Bearer lights a book of matches and hands it to Kane, who then sets the casket on fire as we go off the air. Ah, but if you were watching the WWF home video version instead of WWE Network, you would have gotten an addendum. Some stagehands put out the fire and pry open the casket as we see that the Undertaker is not inside. We then hear Taker's voice coming from somewhere, possibly the gates of hell, and he says, Cain, until our paths cross again, I shall never rest in peace. And that was your 1998 Royal Rumble. After all that, I feel like I've given you enough for a recap for a full podcast already, but uh, fuck it, we'll go a little long in this one. So let's get into the January 19th, 1998 episode of Monday Night Raw, live from Fresno, California. We open the show on a bit of a down note as we get an in-loving memory tribute for Juanita McMahon, the wife of Vince McMahon Sr., and mother to Vince McMahon. A word of advice? Keep her casket away from Kane. And speaking of which, we begin with a recap of the Undertaker-Kane drama, then the opening credits, followed by the pyro and the obligatory scanning of the crowd. Not many noteworthy signs except for maybe I'm all ears for you, Tyson, a reference to the infamous incident from seven months prior, where Iron Mike bit off part of Evander Holyfield's ear during the fight, which resulted in Tyson's boxing license being revoked, which caused him to have enough free time to hang out in the WWF. We open with Paul Bear heading to the ring, as Michael Cole tells us that last night he and Kane committed one of the most, quote, Hane-ish acts in WWF history, Bearer tells us that Kane abandoning him was all a plan to get The Undertaker to trust Kane, and everyone fell for it, especially last week on Raw, when Kane saved Taker. The crowd chants, you suck at him, to which Bearer oddly replied, well, if I do, I must be good. Wait, what? Never mind. Bearer then recaps what happened last night at the Rumble, including a rare but amusing line flub from him. Bearer then tells us that the Undercasket or Undertaker is gone and never to return, but then Taker's music plays. We then see some really shoddy-looking druids wheeling the burnt casket to the ring and seemingly having some difficulty doing so. The casket lid opens, and it's Kane. Bearer then says, I present to you the last surviving member of the Undertaker's family, so basically he just admitted that they both committed murder last night. He then finishes by saying, and that's the way I like it, because I'm Paul Bearer and you're not. There's probably a reason that never became a catchphrase. 
We go backstage where DX is hanging out in the locker room. Hunter says that Owen Hart should pack his bags and head south like his brother because he can't cut it in the WWF. Sean then says that he successfully defended his WWF title last night, but he was guilt-ridden over what happened to The Undertaker, so DX will make it their mission to find him and bring him back to Raw tonight. First match of the evening, Disciples of Apocalypse members Chains, Skull, and 8-Ball versus Nation of Domination members Farouk, Kama Mustafa, and D'Lo Brown. Miraculously, a DOA chant breaks out during this match, so kudos to the Fresno crowd because I don't think a single audience has given two shits about them since I've started doing this show. The match was actually not terrible, but it did feature a hilarious-looking botch. If you watch on the WWE Network, it happens about 19 minutes and 45 seconds into the show. Farouk whips 8-Ball into the ropes, and he then ducks to presumably backdrop 8-Ball, so 8-Ball tries to counter by pushing Farouk's face into the canvas, but instead Farouk jumps in the air before falling to the ground, and the whole thing just looks completely ridiculous. Check it out sometime if you want a good chuckle. The match ends when all six men start brawling in the ring, so the referee calls for the bell, resulting in a double disqualification. Yes, that's right, yet another DQ finish on Raw, because who gives a shit about actual decisive finishes in wrestling? The Rock and Mark Henry then head down to the ring to help their Nation of Domination teammates, but Ken Shamrock and Ahmed Johnson then follow them to the ring to help even the odds. The faces clean house, causing the NOD to retreat. This was well before Teddy Long was a general manager, but I think it's safe to say this will be setting up a 10-man tag match sometime in the near future, playa. Backstage, we see a hearse arriving in the arena, so presumably DX has tracked down The Undertaker. Either that, or they've found a place to put the Legion of Doom's career. And holy shit, we then get an ad for Raw Magazine, starring the editor-in-chief of the publication, Vic Venom. Of course, Vic Venom is the alter ego of none other than Vince Russo. I would play the ad for you, but it's just too fucking annoying, so I'll give you a quick transcript of Russo putting himself over. You think those chicken bleep announcers on TV are shooting with you? I don't think so. It's all in the spoldings. You either got him or you don't. You want fluff? Go eat a bleepin' marshmallow. However, he forgot to add, You want me to book matches that last more than five minutes and end with clean pinfalls? Up your mother's ass. Next up, Tom Brandy versus Mark Marrow, accompanied by Sable. Yes, this epic feud continues. You may recall these two had a match about two weeks ago, but shockingly, it ended in a disqualification when Steve Austin interfered and hit Marrow with a stunner, so this rivalry must continue. During the match, a man delivered a bouquet of flowers to Sable from an unknown suitor, which caused Marrow to angrily throw them to the ground. Who were they from? My money is on Brock Lesnar. The match ended after only a few minutes when Sable got up on the ring apron for no reason, which allowed Marrow to hit Brandy with a low blow and then a TKO for the three count. It wasn't quite a clean finish, since Sable did interfere, but at least it wasn't a disqualification, so thanks for that, Vic Benham. After the match, Marrow started hitting Brandy with the flowers as though he was playing No Mercy for Nintendo 64, and that appears to be the end of this amazing feud. Backstage, DX slowly creeps up on the hearse. They open the back of it, and it's full of DX groupies. Sean and Hunter go inside as China gives an amusing, irritated look and closes the door. Apparently, in 1998, hearses were the original party buses. After a quick commercial break, we go backstage again where some limos are arriving. A man opens one of the limo doors, and the aforementioned Shane McMahon is the first one out, but right behind him is Mike Tyson. Yes, as we have seen in previous weeks, no one gives a shit about being on time for Monday Night Raw, not even the boss's son and the man who this entire episode is built around. Next up, we have Cactus Jack and Chainsaw Charlie taking on, holy shit, the Quebecers? Yes, you heard that correctly. Jacques Rougeau and Carl Ouellette are teaming together in the WWF once again for the first time in three and a half years. 
They previously won the WWF Tag Team titles on three separate occasions from 1993 to 1994, so they've definitely been a successful tandem in the past. Before rejoining the WWF, Rougeau spent two years in WCW where, on April 11, 1997, he actually pinned Hulk Hogan cleanly at a house show in Montreal. I'm not bullshitting you, Jacques fucking Rougeau owns a clean pinfall victory over Hulk Hogan during the height of his NWO run. It's on YouTube, go check it out, and prepare to have your mind blown. One more quick note on Rougeau, he previously wrestled as the Mountie and was part of the fabulous Rougeau Brothers tag team, so for my money, he has personally sung two of the finest wrestling entrance themes of all time. As for Carl Ouellette, a.k.a. Pierre, after the Quebecers broke up, he stayed in the WWF and was repackaged in 1995 as a pirate, yes, a pirate, named Jean-Pierre Lafitte. Stupid gimmick, but he did get a three-month feud with Bret Hart where he stole his sunglasses and leather jacket. He did eventually join Rougeau and WCW in 1996, and they formed a team called the Amazing French Canadians, but it was a mostly uneventful run. But now, the Quebecers are back in the WWF, and to their credit, they actually look like they're in pretty good shape. After a few minutes of the Quebecers dominating the match by working over Terry Funk, Cactus Jack ran into the ring and started beating on them. When the referee told Cactus to leave the ring, he put the mandible claw on the ref, and gosh darn it, I know this is going to come as a tremendous shock, but the match ended in a disqualification. I know, I know, I I can't believe it either. After the match, the teams brawled to the outside, where Funk then climbed on the second rope and did what was basically a Vader bomb to all three men on the floor. Cactus re-entered the ring, but he was then booted out by Jacques. We then got a pretty cool spot where Pierre bounced off the ropes, and Jacques backdropped him over the top rope onto Cactus on the arena floor. Cactus then decided to get the upper hand by grabbing his barbed wire-covered baseball bat, which caused the Quebecers to run away. Honestly... No disrespect to the Quebecers, but you're telling me that you can't put Foley and Funk over them cleanly when we know they're gearing up for a feud with the New Age Outlaws for the tag titles? I guess Russo just didn't have the spaldings to do that. Backstage, DX continue to search for The Undertaker, but instead they come across Max Mini, Mosaic, and Nova. Sean asks China to hold Max Mini up so he can talk to him face-to-face, but they can't speak Spanish, so the effort was futile. Triple H didn't really say anything in this segment, but we certainly know he can't speak Spanish because of this conversation with Jim Ross. Not gonna lie, that is honestly one of my all-time favorite exchanges in WWF history, mainly for the incredibly uncomfortable three seconds of silence, and I'm probably gonna find many more excuses to use that clip in the future. You've been warned. Next up, we have an NWA North American Heavyweight Championship match. Champion Jeff Jarrett, accompanied by his NWA stablemates Jim Cornette and the Rock and Roll Express, versus Blackjack Bradshaw, accompanied to the ring by Blackjack Wyndham. It's funny to see the future JBL saddled with a shitty gimmick where he's sporting an idiotic-looking horseshoe mustache. He's been with the WWF for two years at this point, previously using the name of Justin Hawk Bradshaw, and he won't really start getting over until about two years from now, but we'll cross that bridge when we come to it. The match featured constant interference by Cornette and the Rockin' Old Express, so Wyndham attempted to interfere on Bradshaw's behalf as well. However, when he went to clothesline Jarrett, Double J ducked, and Wyndham mistakenly hit Bradshaw, enabling Jarrett to pin him for the victory. Well, well. Now JBL knows how it feels to job to a clothesline, eh? After the match, Jarrett starts to do his trademark strut, but Bradshaw takes offense to it and starts beating on him. The NWA members then gang up and take the advantage, culminating with Cornette walloping Bradshaw in the back with his tennis racket. Wyndham then runs into the ring, and the NWA members separate. He picks up Bradshaw, but then Wyndham whips him off the ropes and hits Bradshaw with a clothesline. Yes, 
Barry Windham has now joined the NWA, despite the fact that Cornette hit him in the back with a tennis racket two weeks ago and cost him the NWA North American Heavyweight Championship. Continuity is not exactly Vic Venom's strong suit. We go backstage where Sean is telling China that he feels bad for promising the fans he would find The Undertaker when they haven't been able to do so. Triple H then stares intently off camera and points to get their attention as the entire screen becomes dark and we head to commercial. Presumably, they have either found The Undertaker or they just witnessed a solar eclipse. When we return from commercial, Vince McMahon narrates the annual honoring of Martin Luther King Jr., so it's actually nice to see they've been doing this for at least 18 years now. Of course, it would be even nicer if they ever actually put the WWF title on an African-American wrestler, but hey, I, I guess I shouldn't ask for so much. We kick off the second hour with more credits, more pyro, and more scanning of the crowd. Still not very many quality signs, except for maybe the perplexing one which says, Hey China, let me show you Shanghai. That's either a really terrible play on China's name, or that guy's humor is brilliant on a level I can't possibly comprehend. Probably the former. The lights go out, and The Undertaker's theme plays. We then see a hooded figure who appears to be The Undertaker being lowered from the roof on a cable. Hold your Owen Hart jokes, please. He enters the ring and raises his arms to turn the lights on, and we see that it's Shawn Michaels. Yes, that means we have had two separate bogus Undertaker teases so far tonight. Triple H and China then head to the ring as well. China is dragging a grill while Hunter is holding a bag and wearing an apron which says, Suck the cook. If someone were to do that, would that make them a real cook sucker? Well, never mind. They both put on chef hats and Sean puts his Undertaker clothes on the grill along with some marshmallows and hot dogs. Hunter says he and HBK both have jumbo wieners, har har, but then he tells China to show them what she's packing, to which she pulls out a giant salami. For those scoring at home, that appears to be an overt reference to Triple H calling out his current real-life girlfriend for having a huge dick, just so we're clear. I'm tempted to play that bilingual soundbite again, but I won't. I won't do it. Hunter then asks Sean if he got those Undertaker clothes from a fire sale, and HBK asks, how do you like your Undertaker, rare, medium, or well done? Okay, I'll admit, I, I did laugh at those lines. Hunter then turns his attention to Owen Hart. He says Owen will get a shot at his European title next week on Raw, which is interesting because Hunter is still on crutches. He then amusingly takes a shot at his future best buddy Ric Flair for some reason. In fact, well, let's play that clip. And on another note, to all you California girls out there, Sean then turns his attention to his future WrestleMania opponent, Stone Cold Steve Austin, and says that HBK is on top of the mountain in the WWF because, quote, the heartbreak kid says so. He then gets a bit too shooty when he tells Austin to ask everyone in the locker room and quote every wrestler he sent down south and they will all tell him that he lays down for absolutely nobody. I assume he's saying that because his injured back is so fucked up right now that laying down is physically difficult for him. Backstage, we see Mike Tyson talking with the Legion of Doom, where Sonny interrupts and says he may be the baddest man on the planet, but she's quite a knockout herself. Animal then says, hey, uh, you know he went to jail for three years for raping a woman, right? Well, okay, not really, but it would have been the decent thing to do. Now we have an eight-man tag match, Los Bariquas versus Owen Hart, Takamichinoku, and the Headbangers. For some reason, the Honky Tonk Man joins the commentary team for this match, and this must have been one of those rare occasions where he was on friendly terms with his real-life cousin, Jerry Lawler. Let's just say Honky has talked a lot of crap about Lawler over the years for his, ahem, previous legal issues. 
Short but fun match here with everyone getting a turn in the ring. Owen was eventually tagged in and started cleaning house and the Bariquas, culminating with him putting the Jesus in the sharpshooter for the tap-out victory. After the match, Michael Cole asks Owen if he accepts Triple H's challenge for a European title match next week, and Owen says he doesn't know what Hunter has planned, but he accepts. Until then, all of Europe will be anxiously waiting to see what happens. Next up, WWF Intercontinental Champion The Rock versus Ahmed Johnson. The Rock attacks Ahmed when he rolls into the ring and takes control early on in the match. In another amazing moment, The Rock hits him with a suplex, and Ahmed then proceeds to yell the loudest F-bomb ever recorded on network television, which the WWE Network thankfully does not censor. Ahmed Johnson, you wonderful bastard. For the second week in a row, The Rock once again hits the people's elbow, so he's definitely making it a regular thing now. Last week, Michael Cole called it a big elbow to the sternum, but this week, JR and Lawler say nothing at all, perhaps puzzled by the move they just witnessed. Once Ahmed takes control of the match, Mark Henry wanders down to ringside and grabs a chair. The Rock distracts the ref, and Ahmed bounces off the ropes, so Henry hits him in the back with the chair, which allows Rock to hit Ahmed with the rock bottom for the three count. After the match, Ken Shamrock runs out from backstage, and this causes The Rock and Henry to run away. Shamrock and Ahmed pose in the ring, as we see that a fan has snuck in a sign which says, Rock sucks cock, so that will now forever live on the WWE Network. Backstage, we see Mike Tyson chatting with DX, and Sean tells him he would be a perfect fit for the group. Of course, that would just be ridiculous, so let's not get our hopes up. Now we have a WWF Tag Team Championship match, Champions the New Age Outlaws versus the Godwins. The Outlaws are dressed in overalls and Billy Gunn is holding a stuffed pig and a showing of solidarity with Henry and Phineas. Road Dogg tries to talk his way out of the title match, but the Godwins jump them instead. For the purposes of this match, the team sporting Confederate flag t-shirts and labels on their jeans are the good guys, in case you were wondering. At this point in time, Henry Godwin is basically a dead ringer for the Kenny Powers character in Eastbound and Down, and I posted a side-by-side comparison on our Twitter, at Raw Attitude Pod, if you don't believe me. Henry immediately rips off Billy's overalls, leaving him in blue tights, to which JR says, First time we've seen Billy Gunn in tights. I hope they don't come off. Spoiler alert, in the future, he will voluntarily take them off many times. Just like last week's Outlaws match, this one also featured a horrendous-looking botch, as Phineas was seemingly trying to lift Billy for a gut-wrench suplex, but Billy apparently thought it was going to be a different move, and he almost got dropped right on his goddamn head. Phineas then covered Billy, but he could be seen talking to him, as if to ask if he was alright. One hour, 17 minutes, and 10 seconds into the episode if you want to check it out. It was dookie. The match ends when Road Dog tosses the stuffed pig to Billy, who then wallops Phineas in the face with it behind the referee's back, enabling Billy to pick up the three count. After the match, Henry clocks Road Dog in the face with a slop bucket, then he tears apart the stuffed pig to reveal that, by God, there was a brick inside that pig. That little pig's house isn't made of bricks, but his ass damn sure is. But anyway, now it's time for your main attraction of the evening. Vince McMahon heads to the ring, accompanied by a chorus of boos, and grabs a microphone. Vince tells us we're about to witness, quote, the biggest announcement ever in World Wrestling Federation history. He then disintegrates his vocal cords by introducing us to Iron Mike Tyson. Tyson heads to the ring, accompanied by his entourage of five random dudes. He says he's been a fan for a long time, and some of his favorite wrestlers were Bruno Sammartino and Nikolai Volkov. That's quite the interesting combination there. Vince then tells us the big announcement will be... Well, he doesn't quite get to tell us, because he gets interrupted by Stone Cold Steve Austin. He poses on the turnbuckles as a bunch of WWF officials run up from backstage and fill the ring. What happens next? Well, you know what? I'll just play it for you. All right. Mr. Austin, why are you here? Because I'm sick and tired of seeing Mike Tyson. He comes in, he's shaking everybody's hands, making friends with all the WWF superstars, And it's made me so damn sick, I've been in the back throwing up. Yeah, 
me too. I ain't gonna shake your damn hand because I ain't out here to make friends with you. Mike, I didn't shut up. I respect, I respect what you've done in the boxing world. But Jesus Christ, son, when you step in this ring, you're messing with Stone Cold Steve Austin, and that's something you don't do. Yeah, you're on a different planet now. Let me make it short and sweet. What I'm telling you is I want a piece of Mike Tyson's ass. Whoa! Shut up. Don't say one word, Vince. I'll knock your damn lights out, too. I respect what you've done, Mike, but you're out here calling yourself the baddest man on the planet. Right now, you got your little beady eyes locked on the eyes of the world's toughest son of a... I could beat you any day of the week, twice on Sunday. Do I think, I, do I think you could beat my ass? Hell no. Do I think I could beat your ass? Why, hell yeah! I don't know how good your hearing is, but if you don't understand what I'm saying, I always got a little bit of sign language, so here's to ya. Eventually, WWF officials are able to corral Austin and march him backstage, but clearly the damage has been done, and perhaps Vince McMahon's deal with Tyson will not end up happening after all. After a quick commercial break, we go backstage where Tyson is arguing with Vince and talking trash about Stone Cold. Sadly, the last thing we hear before we go off the air is Tyson referring to Austin as a faggot. Yes, I'm sorry, but that is actually how the episode ends. I can see why the WWE leaves that part out when they show the clips of the Tyson-Austin confrontation these days. But there you have it. Austin wants Tyson. Tyson wants Austin. How is this possibly going to play out? Well, I guess you'll just have to stay tuned as we are now officially on the road to WrestleMania 14. And now, let's go to the wrap-up. Yo, I slayed them seeds back in the rec room era. My style broke motherfucking backs like him for terror. I freak beat slam it like Iron Sheik. We dedicated to cast that's been thugging. Then he passed out more hoes than Jim Duggan. I'm 
Rogers out of my fucking mind. It won't let me back in. Cause I was down before the heights like Dusty Rhodes and Bob Backlund. Bruno San Martino, Stan Stasiak. Now the rockin' Stone Cold on my favorite maniac. The top rooster pluckin'. Chickens when they pluckin'. Cause WWF stands for women where we fuckin'. The ratings recap. So, did Mike Tyson's appearance help Raw at all in the ratings? As Steve Austin might say, oh hell yeah. Raw's rating bumped up from a 3.4 last week to a 4.0 tonight, which was still not enough to beat Nitro's 4.5. However, in case you were wondering when was the last time Raw put up a 4.0 rating in a head-to-head matchup with Nitro, the answer is... never. That's right, this was Raw's highest ever rating going up against Nitro. They topped a 4.0 on some occasions when WCW was preempted, but never when both shows aired on the same night. Clearly, the Mike Tyson hype was enough to pull quite a few viewers away from Nitro. In fact, Eric Bischoff has frequently cited the Tyson appearance as the moment when WCW's fortunes went downhill. Here's an excerpt from an interview Bischoff did with 6ABC.com in January of 2015. I knew early in 1998 when WWE was really starting to put pressure on me. They signed Mike Tyson, which, by the way, I think was the big pivot point. It was the beginning, no matter what anybody says, it was the beginning of the Attitude Era, which was kind of taking a look at the NWO and trying to put a WWE spin on it. The Attitude Era was really a replication of the NWO formula, which was completely counterintuitive to everything that WWE had been doing up to that point. But when WWE finally went, okay, Nitro's got a formula, it's working, it's kicking our ass, we have to do our version of it, it was really the Mike Tyson angle with Steve Austin, Vince McMahon, that really was the pivot point. So there you have it. I don't know that I'd necessarily say the Attitude Era was WWF's version of the NWO, but hey, to each his own. Of course, WCW still did win the ratings on this night, so here is what they put up against Raw on their go-home Nitro before sold-out 1998. Rick Martel defeated Eddie Guerrero. Wow, really? Chris Benoit defeated Marty Jannetty. Ernest Miller defeated Jerry Flynn. The Steiner Brothers defeated Buff Bagwell and Conan. Booker T retained his WCW television title against Mortis. Chris Jericho defeated Juventud Guerrera, which means I am contractually obligated to play The Rock's soundbite mocking Jericho's choice of WCW opponents. You think you impressed The Rock? You think you impressed The Rock? Why? Because a couple of months ago, you were down south beating some jabroni named Hooventude? Lex Luger defeated Scott Hall by disqualification, and The Giant defeated Hollywood Hulk Hogan. Sounds like a pretty mixed bag there from a wrestling standpoint, but clearly it was enough to keep the majority of fans on the TNT network, despite the big angle on the other channel. The Raw Synopsis Once again, from a wrestling perspective, the show was pretty subpar, but thankfully there were a few segments which made it worth watching. The DX cookout was entertaining, plus we got to hear Ahmed Johnson yell fuck, and Paul Bearer say undercasket. And of course, the Tyson-Austin segment is legendary for a reason. The world's most famous boxer going toe-to-toe with one of the biggest superstars in wrestling? That's good stuff right there, and it rightfully got a lot of mainstream media attention, which is, of course, exactly what Vince McMahon wanted the most. This is one of the defining moments of the Attitude Era, perhaps even the top moment depending on who you ask, so it seems like the WWF is finally beginning to hit its stride. As always, thanks for listening to the Raw Attitude Podcast. I am Henry Hugepex, the suplex-throwing human duplex, and I will remind you once again to feel free to review us on iTunes, drop us a line at rawattitudepodcast at gmail.com, or tweet us at rawattitudepod. I leave you now with a clip of Mike Tyson describing himself, and I will catch you next time but you guys can't define me uh, define my work as a father i'm many things you know i'm many things yeah i'm a convicted rapist i'm 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 a i'm a hellraiser i'm a father a loving father i'm a i'm a, you know i'm a semi-good husband you know what i mean what